Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Our scripture this morning comes from Exodus 15, 1 through 11. And if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them, and they sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Morning, friends. Uh, if you're new here, uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and uh, it's, it's good to have you with us. Let me pray as we begin today. Once again, our Father, we uh, gather as your children with all different kinds of things going on in our lives, some good, some bad. Um, you, you see our hearts, you see our lives in a way that we don't even see them, and we thank you that you're good and kind toward us, and I pray that you would, by the power of the Spirit, open our eyes to see you now clearly, and we ask in Jesus' powerful name, amen. <clears throat> to start off today, I want to describe for you a, a couple of different experiences I've had just in the last couple of years. Um, very different experiences, both occurred in stadiums. Uh, One of them, the first one, was in Sao Paulo, Brazil, which is in the southern part of Brazil. My wife and I were there, I don't remember when it was exactly, in the last year and a half or so. I was speaking at a conference there, and our hosts were uh, very generous and said they could get us tickets to one of the football games or soccer games. Sao Paulo is so large, it is such a massive city that they have three Premier League level teams, football teams, which is a lot. And so we got tickets to one of them and we, and we went and soccer or football is so intense in Brazil, like in a lot of countries, that they don't even allow really people from the opposing team to come to the game because of fear of violence. They give them one little tiny section that's covered over with glass for fear that uh, there'll be a riot. In fact, our host said, they checked our clothing when we were going to go to the game. They said, you have to wear the right colors because if you're not, you might get in a fight. I mean, somebody might pick a fight with you. So it's that intense, right? So we we go to this experience, beautiful stadium, incredible experience, um, energy in the air, excitement. Now, the other 
experience I want to describe to you is just a few months ago in April, my wife and I and some friends were able to go see Taylor Swift, which was awesome, uh, in Tampa. It was in the, one of the early stops in her now um, you know, record-breaking, economy-changing, amazing eras tour. And it was, again, amazing. Clothing, everybody's wearing pretty similar clothing, and also uh, just, you know, energy in the air, and it was, you know, very exciting. And if you don't like Taylor Swift, then insert into your mind whatever you want. If you want to put Bruce Springsteen or U2 or Elvis or wherever, Metallica, Nickelback, whatever you want, you can, you can put in that category as well. But just to me, imagine the excitement of, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 people there together, really verged on transcendence. So you have two different experiences, both occur in stadiums, two different countries, two very different groups of people, um, two different purposes of gathering, and yet there's one thing that holds them together deeply, and that is singing. Not just individual singing, not just car or shower singing where we're all amazing, um, but also not self-conscious singing, but wholehearted, full-throated singing. Now, with the Taylor Swift concert, you can imagine that was the case. We're all singing all the lyrics to every song, myself included. I'm not that dad standing like there. I was like all, all about it as well, and I remember it all too well, as they would say. But you may not realize that in football or soccer throughout most of the world, when you go to soccer games or football games, they actually are singing almost the entire time as well. Not so much in, in the States, but in other countries, there is nonstop singing. And it was just as wholehearted, just as, as full-bodied as that for the, the team called the Corinthians that we saw. They're kind of, a, they're kind of an intense crowd, and, the, and their theme song, translated in English, basically says, Oh, Corinthians, my life, my story, my love. I mean, there's just as passionate uh, as being at a Taylor Swift or whatever concert you want. Now, two very different groups of people, two very different parts of the world, Two different reasons for gathering, but again, one deeply human experience, and that is singing. And of course, it's not just football stadiums, not just concerts like this. This is, a, this is really a deeply human and universal experience. You may, if you're around some time ago when we were preaching through Genesis, you may remember I mentioned then that a lot of people would understand that actually creation itself... From the Hebrew Bible, what we see in Genesis 1, that it may be indicating that God actually sang creation into being itself. And you see, for example, Tolkien picks up on this in The Lord of the Rings and The Cimmerillion. He describes Middle Earth coming into being through singing. Um, Lewis picks up on this and Narnia describes, Middle Earth, or describes Narnia being uh, sung into being. Linguists or anthropological linguists suggest that maybe humans sang before we spoke even. It's a very natural and deep thing in us. In the ancient world and really up until modern times, warriors would sing as they go into battle. And when you start thinking about the Bible, you see there's singing happening all over the place, including this big book right in the middle of the Bible that we call the Psalter, the book of Psalms, it has 150 songs for every occasion that really mark what it means to be the people of God. Both Jewish people and Christian people understand the Psalter as being at the heartbeat of what it means to follow God. And all of that leads us right to our text for today. Because we're continuing our trek this summer 
on the first part of Exodus, we'll get through Exodus 19 this summer, and then we'll pick back up with Luke in the fall. But here we are in chapter 15, and what we've seen so far in the first 14 chapters of Exodus, that the whole story of Israel has centered on the place and the ancient empire of Egypt. Our story back in Exodus 1 starts with Israel enslaved in Egypt, oppressed, beaten down, often killed, no hope, no future, no freedom to worship as they wanted. They've really lost their identity as a people. And we've seen the dramatic story over the last 14 chapters of this young boy, Moses, this Jewish boy, who gets rescued from being killed, ends up being the prince of Egypt, and eventually, though, has to flee Egypt because he kills a, uh, an Egyptian soldier, spends decades in the wilderness, and then finally God calls him back to rescue the people of Israel from Egypt. And over the last few weeks, we've seen these intense plagues that God brought upon Egypt to, to show the world and to show Pharaoh who he was. And so that finally the Pharaoh reluctantly, half-heartedly lets the people of Israel go after the death of his son. But even then, after they're fleeing into the wilderness and marching out, he changes his mind and decides to go and kill them. And that's exactly what it looks like is going to happen in chapters 13 and 14. The Israelites are out in the wilderness and they're trapped now because they're facing this body of water. They see the Egyptians coming upon them with one intent to kill them and they have nothing they can do. And then one of the most amazing miracles in the Bible that most people have heard of happens. God actually opens the waters. The Israelites are able to go through They arrive on the other side, the Egyptians follow through, their chariots get stuck in the mud and the muck and the waters come back in and destroy the whole army. And so chapter 15, you see, is this turning point because that is the whole era, chapters one to 15, of the Egypt part of Israel's story. Egypt will not be a player again in the whole rest of the Bible, except for occasionally mentioned and in words of prophecy, et cetera, or people going in and out of there. But this is the Egypt era of Israel's story, and it's now ended, chapters 1 to 15, this really crucial part that really shapes them and changes them as a people. And so then we have to ask, so what happens in chapter 15? At the end of the story, well, notice they don't write a, they don't make a documentary. Moses doesn't preach a sermon. They don't Uh, write a theology book. They don't build a statue or a monument. All good things, things they will do and all beneficial things. But what is their first and most natural response to all of this story coming to its head in chapter 15? They sing. They sing. This is the most natural and powerful response to all of what has happened. And what we see in Exodus 15 verses 1 to 18 records what we call the song of the sea. And it's a song that I imagine probably started off antiphonally, where Moses maybe shouted out a line, and then the people responded with that line, and then he shouted out another line of praise to God, and people responded. And we sometimes teach new songs that way. And then it became a a pattern, and it became a a song that they remembered. It has a huge impact. We see it repeated in a lot of the other psalms, and it has a huge impact on Israel's self-understanding. It becomes foundational, really, to who they are. 
And if you look at verses 20 and 21, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you, I think it's page 54 we said, or you can pull it up on your phone, because I'd like you to look at some of these verses. We see in verses 20 to 21, it's not just the men singing, but Miriam, who's the sister of Moses and Aaron, she also played a really important part. Not only did everyone sing with joy, but Miriam grabbed a tambourine or some kind of drum thing like this and started dancing around and leading all the women to be involved in this worship as well. We don't know what dance moves it was, moonwalk, walk like an Egyptian, the Macarena, we don't know, but it's really clear that she is helping lead this celebration. And they also chime in with the chorus probably antiphonally again, like kind of singing back and forth that Moses and the men were singing as well. Look at verse 20. It says, then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand. All the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver. He is hurled into the sea. So part of the the beauty and the power of these 21 verses that really finish the Egypt story especially with the the reference to the women here, is that if you go back to Exodus 1 and think about it, this really beautifully and intentionally ties together the whole story because in Exodus 1, it was the women of Israel who first opposed Pharaoh, right? And said, you know, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to kill the young Jewish boys like he had commanded. And so there they are at the beginning and here they are celebrating then at the end. And also... Miriam. Do you consider this connection? We meet Miriam back in chapter 2 of Exodus when she's standing on the banks of the Nile, sees her little baby brother who's been put in this wicker basket in hopes that he won't be killed and sees by a miracle that Pharaoh's daughter finds her. And remember, Miriam's the one who says, I can find a nurse for him. And then they get to take Moses and raise him in his own family for several years before he becomes a prince in Pharaoh's household. This is the same Miriam who's now standing on the edge of water again at the end of the Egypt story, seeing instead of the destruction and all the pain that they had experienced for hundreds of years, now seeing God's victory. So there's a beautiful symmetry here that's intentional. And what we see in chapter 15 is this full-bodied, full-throated rejoicing in God's goodness. It's like a Taylor Swift concert and a football game and a worship service and everything else you can imagine all wrapped up into one. And so when we think about this for us, you know, all scripture we believe is breathed out by God. It's not just just giving us historical information. It's meant to shape us, to teach us. And so what I want to do as we look at these verses for a few minutes together today, I want to ask and answer two simple questions. The first is, like, so why do we sing? Like, what, what are we learning from this? Why do we sing in general? And then secondly, what do we learn from this song in particular? Like, what is God saying to us and what can we learn from this song in particular? So here's the first question, why do we sing in general? Well, I noted a moment ago that to be human really is to sing. And it's because it's who God is himself. We understand that If you think about the heavenly scenes we see in the Bible, there's tons of singing going on. And that if God spoke into being creation through singing, and then all throughout time they're singing, even now in heaven. And then if you look at the end of the Bible in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, we'll see in chapter 19, there's this huge worship service going on. So this is like this fundamental reality 
And that explains why for us as humans to exclaim something, to, to use our words either in a moment of awe or in a moment of grief, that's entirely natural. And what singing is, singing is just using those natural bodily vocal exclamations of either joy or sadness or confusion, and it's channeling those into a, into a formalized, memorizable, um, repeatable way. That's what singing is. It's just taking these natural things about it means to be human and putting them into words and song. But there's also more going on, I think, in singing in the way God has designed us. And I want to just briefly mention three things to help you think about what's going on when we sing. Here's the first one. Singing gives us words and thoughts that explain and deepen our experiences. If you ever notice this, maybe it's a, a love song or a song of a broken heart or a, you know, a moment of glory song. What a song does, it gives us words, it gives us metaphors, it gives us images that actually enable us to articulate what we're feeling. This is how God has designed it. That, that dancing is one thing, and dancing is good, not when I do it, but when other people do it, it can be good. But singing is where you combine your body in all these ways with words that enable you to actually make sense of what you're actually experiencing, right? It speaks from the heart, and it gives us clarity. So again, whether it's, I remember in eighth grade and junior high when our team won the basketball championship or something. I was not on the team, but just to be clear. Um, but the, the team won, and I remember they played over the intercom, we are the champions, you know? And that, like, gave this sort of culminating experience to, to us winning the eighth grade, you know, basketball championship, whatever it was. Or when we, you know, again, experience love, a song helps us to to say what we'd want to say that we wouldn't be able to say or didn't even know how to say it. All of me loves all of you, right? Or a heartbreak, whatever it is. Turns out freedom ain't nothing but missing you, whatever it is. Because you see, without the words, the experience is not fully sufficient. And then what songs actually do, they don't only explain it, but they also enables us to interpret something correctly. What Moses is doing here is he's explaining to the people in song that all this stuff they just had happen, all this rescue and the, and the fact that the people that were about to kill them are now dead, it wasn't just a fluke. It wasn't just a lucky thing that happened. It wasn't just an accident. It wasn't just something that they did by their power. By singing a song about it, it clarifies what actually happened that God showed up and rescued those who were in need. And this is the power of a song in every human way, including in the Bible. Second thing to observe about singing. Singing creates bonds among us and provides together corporate memories, memories together, provides bonds and gives us memories that we share together. If you think about it from a kind of neurological or psychological or sociological perspective, you know, people are increasingly recognizing that something happens when we sing together that deeply affects us. And they've been able to observe, you know, this sense that this hyper-connectedness, this sense of belonging that happens together when we engage in singing together, 
part of what's going on, it's not the only thing, but part of what's going on, there's a hormone. Oxytocin in our brains that one person has described as like a neurochemical soul glue that actually is produced in a number of specific situations, but when we sing together, they can track it, it's produced at incredibly high levels. And so what actually happens, just from a neurological perspective, is that the, the act of singing together actually bonds people together. It's amazing. Now, we understand that's not all that's happening. God is behind that. That's how God has made the world, and he's intentionally doing that. But this is this fundamental truth of what it means to be human and singing. In the 19th century, when in Europe, a lot of the ethnic groups, Hungarians and Czechs and Slovaks and others, were trying to kind of get away from being controlled by their empires, a big part of the importance of that kind of forming of nation states in the 19th century in, in Europe was the rediscovery and the emphasis on music that connected people together. This is what it means to be a Czech person. This is what it means to be a Slovak person, right? So like Spetana's Moldau, this very important song became like this really crucial way for Czech people to say, this is what it means to be Czech people, such that later when Hitler took over that area, he banned the singing of that song and banned the performing of it because it was so powerful in bonding them together. Well, this is again what's happening here in this text is that up to this point, the Israelites have not really been a people. You see, they've not been allowed to worship. They've not been allowed to follow what God had commanded. They have been a, a group of slaves that were on the bottom rung of society. And this song now, given by God, enables them to sing and to bond together as the people of God. It's interesting that you remember back in Exodus 3 when God revealed his name to Moses, this very important name that we would pronounce maybe Yahweh or something now. We don't know really how to pronounce it. No one in the book of Exodus up to this point has actually even uttered that phrase, that word, that connection of letters, except for Moses, until now in this song. In this song now, all the Israelites say the name of God. And in doing of that, they become more than they were before. They are bound together as a national people in a way that is going to prepare them for what God has in store for them. This is all God's doing. And the third thing to just say about singing is that singing not only reflects what's in our hearts, it also affects what's in our hearts. Singing not only reflects, but also affects what's in our hearts. Singing doesn't, you see, just come out of us. It actually, something comes into us when we sing together. Something comes in, and as I often tell you from this pulpit, as we do, so we become. That is, that the things that we do with our minds, the things we do with our bodies, the things we do with our actions, they not only reflect who we are, they actually shape us to be more like that kind of person. Every choice we make shapes us in down one way of inhabiting the world or another way. It's easy to think about this when you think about children, but it's true for adults as well. I like to think of the analogy with raising kids as like a tree that you want to be a mighty tree one day, but when it's starting off, you often a big tree, you have to actually stake it down to guide it, and yet maybe you have to wrap it to protect it from disease. 
Now, you do have to eventually take those steaks off and you have to unwrap it or else it won't grow in a healthy way. You can figure out the analogies for parenting. It's easy for parents sometimes to have trouble doing that. But you're shaping the tree to grow in a certain way so that it can flourish, right? And to use a related illustration from uh, my colleague at school and our fellow sojourner here, Matthew Westerholm, he talks about worship as being like language school in the sense that you teach a kid to say, I'm sorry and thank you, even before they fully understand what that means or when they don't even feel it, right? Because what you say helps shape how you see the world and how you inhabit the world. And how much more was singing? Because singing is not only words we say that shape us, it's also connected to this full-bodied experience of our vocal cords and our, our bodies and our minds and all our hearts, all our lungs, all the things that we are to be human, to be embodied creatures. When we sing, it's like it shapes us to see the world in certain ways. And worship has this particular power to do that. And this is why our worship leaders, like Mandy and Sam and others, they are up here leading us in everything we do in church, our times of confession, our times of assurance, our prayers, praying when we speak part of the prayer and other people speak part of the prayer, our sermons, our taking of communion. All these things that we do with our bodies are for a very particular purpose. They are for the purpose to shape us, to, to learn to be in the world in a way that maybe we don't always feel it. I'm sure they don't always feel it. Our lives are up and down emotionally. We struggle with being present. That's part of being human, but we stay in these habits. These things change us. They shape us so that when, even though we're fickle in our hearts and our affections, this becomes the reality for us so that we also joining together help each other in learning the ways of God in worship and in all the aspects of worship of what we're doing as well. I can imagine very easily a possible response at this point is like, that's all fine for you. You can sing. We all wish we could sing like Mandy. We can't. I can't sing, you might say. And according to Google, about 20% of you can't. Okay, I get it, right? And the reason is, is because either you, genetically it's more difficult for some people. For most people, it's probably they just haven't grown up in a home like that where there was singing. And maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're thinking, that's fine. I don't sing. I'm glad to be here, but I don't sing. I'm not a singer. I didn't grow up in a home like that. I'm not emotional, whatever it is. Well, I just want to say to you, I understand. But let me invite you to think about it a little bit differently. First of all, <clears throat> in singing together, there's a beautiful anonymity. <laughs> We're not giving everybody a microphone for a reason, right? Um, and that's okay. I always think of a dear friend of mine, a, a scholar who is an absolutely horrible singer. He's not here in church. And every time I'm with him, I'm like, wow, yeah, he definitely can't sing. But what's really clear is that he is wholehearted in, in his doing. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's what I want to invite you to. Whether you think you're a good singer or not, or maybe worst case scenario, you think you are, but you're not, whatever it is, whether you can sing or not, or whether you think you like singing or not, the excellence of the music is not the point. God doesn't care. What he cares, what he always sees and cares about is our heart. And that when you and I sing, even if we're not the best, we are contributing to the bonding together of, of all of us. And we're contributing to the shaping of all of us together. And you yourself, even if you're not super talented, it's okay. You will be shaped by the doing of the act if you're open to God. 
That's how God's made us. So this isn't just for the pros, right? This is for all of us. So by faith, we engage in all the activities of, of worship, all the things we do on a Sunday morning so that we can grow up into it together. I mean, I often think from the outside, this looks so weird to sing. Have you ever thought about that? Like maybe you're a visitor here and like, what? Like maybe you've never been in your church. You're like, this is totally weird. What are we, everybody knows these songs. What are we doing? Why do we sing? We don't sing just to butter you up before the offering. We don't sing to say, wow, these guys are really good musicians. That, I mean, that excellence is fine, but that's not what we sing. We sing because this is a crucial part of being shaped by God to be his people. And that's beautiful. I said there were two questions I wanted to ask. That's the first one. Why do we sing in general? And then because we really want to hear from this text. And normally we would just kind of walk through each verse. But in this case, the way a song works, it doesn't work as well. So I want to do, though, I do want to ask, so what do we learn in particular from this song? What do we learn from this song in particular? Well, I don't know if you felt this. I felt it in both services when I heard it read. Maybe your sensibilities were a little disturbed that here they are singing when there's a bunch of dead people, like that their enemies are dead, they're floating and they've got broken chariot wheels. Maybe it feels like, wow, that's really insensitive. Well, I understand that, but let me help you understand here that this is not a triumphalistic, mocking, vengeful song. I'm afraid if we maybe were singing a song you know, in a, on a, after a sports game or something, we might be tempted to do it in a vengeful way. That's not what's going on here at all. This is not spiteful singing over defeated enemies. This is spontaneous gratitude for a truly miraculous deliverance. The Israelites are not glorying in their military victory. They're not glorying in death in the sense of like vengeful. They are nothing but relieved and amazed that God would show up. Because you have to remember, these Egyptians, they, they were not there to just hang out. They had been perpetrators of genocide and slavery for hundreds of years, and there was only one outcome for the Israelites here. Men, women, and children were all going to be murdered. There's no doubt. And again, that's what looked like what was going to happen. And so when all of a sudden, out of nowhere they are saved. There's no vengefulness here. This is totally a gratitude song to God. It is honoring his power over this, but there, there's nothing in it. And part of why we know that is because you realize they had nothing to do with this victory. God made it very clear. They didn't like do really cool sword play and did some cool swimming tricks or something. They had nothing to do with this victory. This is, they were completely desperate. God saved them. And all they could say is, God, you did this and we are saved by your kindness alone. So I don't want you to think of this in a kind of weird way as if it's vengeful, it's not. But it's really not even the most important thing to say about this song. I wanna, if you have the text in front of you, look, I just wanna highlight a couple of things about what God is teaching us about himself. The first to point out is that the Lord is strong. Do you see it there in verse one? You can also see it in verse 21. He is highly exalted. He overthrows his enemies. No one can stand against him. Verse two, he is our strength and our defense or song. 
In other words, God is being pictured as he is throughout the Bible as a warrior, one who controls water, controls everything that happens and works wonders. And related to that, look at verse 18. The Lord reigns forever and ever. We learn that God is a king who has a kingdom that does not end. This is, this is his power. This is a battle of two kings here, an earthly king, Pharaoh, and the true king of the world, God. And it's clear who is the one whose kingdom will last forever. There is no great Egyptian empire now, and God still reigns. This is exactly what Jesus is going to say. When he comes, he's going to speak the same kind of language, the kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom is now coming to earth through himself. He is the king, and this is the same message here. And so this song of the sea rehearses for the Israelites, God is powerful, God is a king, his kingdom lasts forever. It's pointing us toward, the, the song shifts towards the future that he's leading them to the promised land. So these royal, regent, majestic, powerful things are all true of God and, and we need that. We need him to be strong. We need him to be strong enough to heal our diseases and rescue us from danger and fix the broken messes either that we have caused ourselves or that have come upon us, broken relationships with children and parents and spouses and friends. We need him to be strong enough to set things to right, and he is. But if that's all that God was, then this story would really just be another example of the cold, sterile, harsh reality that the biggest power wins. There's something else we learn about God. Look at verse two again. He's not only powerful and majestic, he's also loving and caring. The Lord is my strength and my defense or song. You could translate it either way. He has become my salvation. He is my God. This is deeply personal, deeply relational. This means that when all else fails, bank accounts, relationships, health, which sooner or later for all of us, honor, things that we own, when all else fails, to know that there is a God, a person who will not fail. And I love this idea of God being our song. If you were to ask yourself, what's my song? Like what's Maybe we say, what's my jam? But what's my song? Like, what, what do I think of like is the most important thing that I love about life and do? Whatever it is, it may be a good thing. It is going to fail eventually. But to be able to say, the Lord is my song, to be able to say, whatever else happens, there's a person, a God who loves me and cares. And look at verse 13. In your unfailing love, chesed, this key biblical idea of God's covenant faithfulness is love. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In other words, he's not just powerful, he's also one who is personal with us and in his love, he's made a, a covenantal loving relationship, true of the Israelites, now true of us in Christ. And all of this combination of God's power and his love and care is summed up, I think, probably in what's the most important verse in the song, and it's verse 11. 
and all they can say, once, once they see all these things, they say in verse 11, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. That's the appropriate response when we see God clearly. Who is like you? There's, there's no one we can imagine that is like this God who is both powerful and tender, who is loving and strong, who does not fade or fail or get grouchy or have a bad day or something be beyond what he cares about. This is the response when we see God clearly, who is like you? And the answer is none. A week and a half or so ago, I was up in Vancouver teaching at a university up there and also giving some lectures in various places and public lectures. And I was at a church on a Thursday night, a big church giving this discussion, having a discussion about what Christianity is, if you think about it as like a true philosophy of life, like a, a wisdom for true life from a biblical perspective. And a lot of people came and Vancouver is so post-Christian, there's like a lot of interest and people are searching, like, how do you find life? And so there's a lot of dialogues. There's some non-Christians there and, and one guy came up to the mic afterwards and had some good Q&A, a man, man of Indian descent. And he asked some great questions and we were talking about Buddhism and Stoicism, all these things. And he said, thank you. You know, I really appreciate all that you're saying and it seems very beautiful, but how do I know which of these is true? Like what you're saying seems to make sense, but Buddhism seems to make sense. Stoicism seems to make sense. Which is a great question. It's a very fair question. And so I explained to him, I, you know, there are historical reasons. The death and resurrection of Jesus, I think, is very plausible historically. And there are also, you know, the system of Christianity is cohesive and coherent and comprehensive, I think. So all those things are, are good reasons to believe but I said, on top of those, I could just also give a testimony, a testimony that I and millions of others can give, that there is no one like God. There is no one like God. The God of the Bible, there is no one like him who is both glorious and kind, who is loving and powerful, who meets our needs and satisfies our longings and explains the world and explains the frustration of being a human living in a broken world. And I can testify, just like the Israelites did here, there is no one like God. Jesus alone has the words of life, as Peter will later say. And so to tie this together, friends, why do we gather and why do we sing on a Sunday morning? Because life is difficult and Dust collects on our souls and on our eyes and on our minds, and we need to gather together to be reminded and to remind ourselves and to remind each other there is no one like God. We gather together because we need to be in unity when our lives are up and down to say, there is no one like this God. The true God of the Bible revealed to us now in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we gather. This odd thing of spending your Sunday morning here is not just a tradition. It's because it's shaping us to see who God is because there is no other like him. And so what do we do with this? Well, let me encourage you to 
intentionally reflect on who God is. If you find your hearts hard, which it, all of our hearts get hard and, and dull, one way that we can intentionally step towards that is to actually do this gratitude exercise where at the beginning of the day or the end of the day or both, just write down things that you're thankful for that are from God. And in doing of that, that begins to warm our hearts and redirect us to what is true, that there's no one like God. And also, I would encourage you to intentionally step toward worshiping with God's people. It's not a new law in any way, but maybe think about Saturday night a little bit more, like how you spend your Saturday night, and maybe plan out your Sunday morning a little bit more so that you can be here ready Again, not a new law. No, no, I'm not condemning anyone. Just saying that because we need each other and because this whole service is designed to shape us, maybe try to be here ready to worship for your good and to give to others in the good of worshiping together. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.